Among the things that I've learned over the years is that if Nathaniel thinks something's cool or interesting, eh, there's reason for hesitation. <laughs> I, I, I'll just I'll just say it that way. It's like, oh no, this is a great idea. I'm going to write a dissertation on on writing program administration. <laughs> eh, maybe not. <laughs> that one was not good. I know. I'm going to do a reading of the Phaedrus. Uh, <laughs> that one's working out. Uh, uh, Paul George is the greatest player in the history of the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> never said that. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think Nathaniel's an extremely smart guy. I really do. But his sort of taste, mm-hmm. or just sort of his, the, his intuition about the cool, mm. uh, it's suspect. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about these last two series? Is that what that's directed at? Uh, that's, that's the jumping off. Point. Uh, right, right. Okay. <laughs> but there is a history. <laughs> I like these last two series. I mean, it, it got me to read the first two series again. I, I think a, a good. I think we should kind of focus on two things today. I'm mean, in a. In addition to just talking about the last two series, but you know, the, we should just kind of think about the the book as a whole. And mm-hmm. I know one of the things that we were talking about in the, in the I think it was the third episode that I'm editing right now is just that you know the organization, the composition of the book, and it's really the relationship between series and, and plateaus, and you know, we might have a different perspective of that okay. now. We're skipping the last, you know, four or so. I, I, I do think you know, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but it's yeah. worth just talking about why. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even if that's just John saying, eh, <laughs> psychoanalysis, just I, I don't want to talk about shit and sex, you know, more than I need to, you know, in this way. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does feel like a. It does feel like a concluding couple series here because he wraps it up with the 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 central example through um, the Lewis Carroll stuff. I, mm-hmm. I do feel like the appendix though works more cleanly as a conceptual conclusion, but these do feel like it's kind of wrapping up in a more traditional way, like would like like in a chapter um, kind of organization. But I I don't know. I wasn't able to really key in to these last two series, maybe as much as you were Nathaniel. So I'm, I'm curious to see like what, uh, what gave you the, the, the sort of ability to, to key in here at the end. Um, well, two things. Yeah. One, I, I liked the, the, the penultimate series yeah. when, you know, the, the three esoteric words get kind of mapped on to the three kinds of series and the three parts of Alice's adventures. And, you know, and that feels like a kind of concluding move to say, right. like, look, there are, you know, the unpronounceable monosyllabism, syllogisms, there are the portmanteau um, oh, right. yeah. uh, words, and, you know, they're, they're like, cor- kind of correspond to the connective, conjunctive, and mm-hmm. disjunctive series. But, you know, at a certain point, he's like, but there's a whole story operating. With, if, if this is a kind of architecture, there's a whole there are a whole series of stories happening within that kind of general architecture that kind of gets he gets at in in the the last series. Right. So there's there's that which you know did feel kind of satisfying as a conclusion. The other one is I, I just I'm getting a clearer and clearer sense as to a Deleuzian sense of, of representation. And I'm just increasingly balking less at that, that word. That, that word is just, for me, being appropriated into, like, the, the notion of representation as sort of like the, 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 a clear mimetic reproduction of some content right. is just, at an instinctual level, not working for me anymore. It's not even like I have to start with that and critique it right. and... You know, imagine some kind of a signifying thing. It's just increasingly becoming like obviously, what else would 
representation be other than some kind of like how could the differential relationship between what is obviously two dynamics not matter and why in the world would you ever think about that relationship exclusively in terms of failure or obfuscation or you know opacity or something like or that or clarity or yeah. accuracy or any of the positive terms too yeah. right yeah 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 that that you know it, it just increasingly seems to me that representation just has nothing to do with with with, with that kind of logic right yeah I don't need to do conceptual labor to get myself there. I, I agree. I agree with you. And, and what I what I took out of, and I'll, I'll talk for a second in terms of my resistances. But um, I, I, what I liked is the syntheses, right? The 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 three syntheses. It made me think, like, wow, I need to go back and reread Anti Oedipus because that's where it's more. The the three syntheses are more fully fully elaborated. But in terms of thinking. What's the relationship among series? How do they connect to one? How do they insert themselves in? And and this being this sort of uh, fra framework for doing so, I, I like that. I mean, that's appealing to me as, like you said, as a kind of wrap up of the book. Here are the different ways in which. Mm -hmm. um, so so I like that as well. I also like the stuff where he talked about uh, uh, psychoanalysis explicitly and just said. You know, there are bad ways of doing psycho, you know, psychoanalyzing the author, psychoanalyzing the work, you know, right. um, the, the bad ways of doing it. So those resonated with me. But the actual, um, I mean, maybe I'm just too far removed from the Alice in Wonderland stuff to really, I did, you know, I read it so long ago, you know, when we first started this, that I don't really remember the chunks as well. Uh, so the particular reading, um, and, I, and I'll just say, I mean, for me, the, the issue with psychoanalysis is like, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's like the equivalent of my relationship to horror movies, which is, I believe, and I know that there are very smart people who find things of deep interest in horror movies. I just don't and, and never have like, and I, I turn on horror movies. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to watch that. Uh, just doesn't, it's not just, I mean, I believe that there's, I believe that I could learn. I believe that there's the possibility of uh, really important stuff. It just has never hooked me and never interested me. And my response is always, I mean, Nathaniel characterized it at the beginning of like, I don't want to read about sex and shit. And it's like, it's kind of that simple. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a sophisticated argument about why. I mean, at times I have tried to make it like why the analyses of the psyche are sort of, you know, ineluctably subjective and consciousness oriented and all of those sorts of things. I mean, there are, there are versions of psychoanalysis that are, that are vulgar and simplistic and are just kind of stupid, sure. which is not the ones that he's kind of using here, but like, you know, the ones where they're trying to find some ultimate meaning to the unconscious or yeah. your dream where you're like decoding the dream and saying like, well, what does this mean in, in the context of your life? And I find that kind of like meaning searching very, just it's pointless. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. It's, it's all framed in that basic humanist, uh, you know, system of yeah. thinking this, but this kind of psychoanalysis that he's running through, I, like you're saying, I don't really have the coordinates to, to get a grasp on them. Like the oral and the anal. I mean, I understand the differentiation and right. between speaking and eating. I mean, some of that is interesting, but I'm like, I don't even really understand why this is that relevant for his system and why he wants to, to write through some of these, uh, like categorical divisions in order to give us his version of like difference and becoming, you know, it's like, I don't, he doesn't seem to need psychoanalysis here in a lot of places. I, I don't even necessarily see the relation at some points. Well, what I, what I see here and what I, when I'm reading the stuff, especially on the, Oedipus complex, as I'm thinking of one in several wolves and a thousand plateaus, and and what I see him doing here is writing through a lot of psycho psychoanalysis that is sort of based in lot like economic logics of lack and possession yeah. and emulation and you know dispossession and you know I see him much more sort of with 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 a much finer with much more dexterity. He's sort of 
unlatching the dominance of those threads and those explanations from a more general psychoanalytic terrain and what you know when he's talking about you know the the artist as the the the, the diagnostic the, the diagnostician and it's like well you know these and, and when he's talking about you know the relationship between states of affairs and bodies and mm. language and the sort of like the the sexual like sexualized threads or sexualized theories desexualized theories and then resexualized like series like those seem to me to be much more contingent and multiple that like yes you know these sorts of things happen they also don't happen and you know combinations happen in this way or that way and you know the the critique that that he later along with Guattari levies against Freud in one of several wolves is not an attack against edible uh, uh, development or act as development it, it, there's an attack but that it's the explanatory mechanism yeah right where, right. where yeah you know this is definitely a dynamic this is definitely a strata that one can get lodged on and then sort of like develop out from but it's it's not it's not the baseline it's not right you know the the, the, the starting point that that you're going to judge everything else from. It's also, it's kind of interesting to me that he's not really critiquing Freud here. And I, I don't remember, but does he like leverage a critique against Freud in this book? Or is that for in, like, in anti-Oedipus. That's for in later, I guess, because he's sort of complimentary to Freud here. He's like, listen, Freud's actually a good example of a, a psychoanalytic thinker because he doesn't use it as an a priori, um, like theoretical framework to analyze phenomena. He actually uh, builds the theory out of, you know, empirical data, which I mean, analysis. you know, which I thought was like, cause he later, he's going to completely reverse that argument. I would think, right. At least in, in terms of anti Oedipus and stuff. Well, in so far as whatever he builds out of, you know, his, his clinical right. studies is becomes generalizable to the point where everything is that right? I, I've always I I felt like a lot of the antagonism to psychoanalysis in the Deleuzian side is Guattari, okay. and uh, it, com it comes from Guattari, who is way more involved in right. He was Lacan's psychoanalysis, student, right? Right, and and I mean you know the the much more polemical dynamics that you read in Anti Oedipus. I mean, I've always taken to be Guattari's. I mean, my sense again, I, and I don't, I don't know this because I don't know. Any, but my sense is, <clears throat> in the in the '60s in France, psychoanalysis is one of the edgy, hip um, intellectual discourses, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean like it was the the current sort of cutting edge uh, of of thinking. And I think that's why he needs it, right? The, the, that's the reason why it becomes relevant. And also because I just imagine there's a, I just imagine there's a ton of psychoanalytic readings of Lewis Carroll yeah. and Alice in Wonderland in the young girl, right? Like it just sort of lends itself towards, you know, certain types of, of statements. So I, I, it makes sense to me. And I, and I do see him. To, to reiterate Nathaniel's point, I, I do see him doing what he does with the Stoics, what he does with, with Kant, what he does is like inhabiting him and torquing it, uh, and finding the cool stuff, yeah. right? Like the non-familial, uh, uh, elements of psychoanalysis. So psychoanalysis is an analysis of desire, right? And that's really interesting to him. Um, it just doesn't have to happen around the coordinates of mommy, daddy, me. Um, and that's a, that's, uh, if anything, that's a normalizing, like that's the dangerous, uh, depth laden way of ap approaching the thing. So I, I get right. why he does it. I get, it makes sense to me. And I, and I actually believe that it would be more interesting, but again, it's like, I wouldn't recommend that somebody go read the Kafka book if they haven't read Kafka, mm -hmm. you know, because it's just, it's just not going to make any sense. He's going to be talking about all these, you know, animal short stories and you're just not going to know what they are. <laughs> And, and I, that's how I feel when I read Deleuze on psychoanalysis is I just don't know enough. I, I get the point that he's inhabiting it and attempting to do something with it. I get that, but only very vaguely and distantly. I can't, I have no purchase on the particulars because my understanding and experience with it is incredibly limited. Like I could teach an intro 
class on Lacan or something. And I've certainly read Freud in my life, but I just don't really have any sense beyond the most simplistic basis of right. what, you know, the, the object ah is, for instance, you know, right. the real, the imaginary, the symbolic, you know, like some of those baseline things. And he's not dealing with those big, those big things. He's dealing with sort of particular strands of psychoanalysis and I'm just too distant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do, I do like the idea that he, he at least runs with in a couple paragraphs where it's like psychoanalysis is more about topology than it is about topical stuff. Like you're saying, it's not about the mother or about these specific locales of psychical activity. It's about like different dimensions intervening on each other. So like whether you want to call them the unconscious and the conscious or, or whatever, it's about like, dimensions of thinking and being interrupting each other and affecting each other in ways right. that maybe are not universal, but are like kind of formal uh, registers of, of interaction, or if you want to call it interaction yeah. to borrow Barad's term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this uh, makes sense just within the big picture conversations that we've been having from the very beginning is, you know, what, why turn to psychoanalysis in a book that is, you know, effectively sort of focused on the relationship between structure and event. And I mean, what I essentially see him doing is rethinking psychoanalysis where the the sort of the structures that are relied on to create, you know, that that, um, topological um, uh, map where, you know, this is the framework, this is the edible framework that we're going to work within, um, to reading those those structures as residues of different styles uh, or different kinds of series working on each other that don't have a predeterminate relationship with each other that can you know for this time for you know this coordination you know develop that but it's only ever going to then evolve elsewhere right yeah It, it reminded me a lot of uh, Hegel's notion of concrete universality. And I was listening back to one of those tapes, too. And it's like when we when we tried to think through Hegel's notion of the universal, it was precisely through that this kind of, in this case, Deleuzian register where every particular instance instantiates the the formalism. So the, the formalism or whatever, the, the, the framework uh, is mutable and um, transforms alongside its context. So there's not yeah. just one overarching Oedipal right. framework that guides, right. you know, human development. It's that each right. time it's a different Oedipal framework or whatever, you know. I, I think that's a really great way of, for me, that's a helpful way of thinking about it. Like what you said in terms of rethink, I mean, to me, it's rethinking structuralism mm-hmm. and, and around series, right? That's, that's the shift is if you had structure and event, you have series event, right? Like, and, and that's the whole issue of the surface, uh, throughout the book. And it seems to me that psychoanalysis is certainly at that time was a kind of paradigmatic case of structuralism. I mean, Lacan says as much, you know, that this is structuralism applied to the, the psyche, Mm -hmm. uh, structuralist linguistics, even so Syrian linguistics. And so it's an attempt to, you know, inhabit it in order to kind of break up the, the normalizing. I mean, I can see why someone like Guattari would be interested in this, this type of work insofar as he, he had problems with the, um, what, I mean, I, I the normalizing function of psychoanalysis, so psychoanalysis mm-hmm. as a, well, certain dogmatism. I, I do, right. And that, I do think that that is, you know, I think maybe I was a little too nice in terms of my problems with psychoanalysis and the horror movie thing is I do, I have felt like there's something dangerous about it. Like it is, it is a discourse of, of normalization that has always felt like a policing. It's always read like, um, you know, and again, not necessarily being handled in the, the, the work of very dexterous, thoughtful, you know, folks. So that being said, um, yeah, because I'm not, I'm not reading widely in it and I'm not necessarily reading the best, you know, the smartest folks, but it, it has always felt to me like 
this is this is how things are supposed to work, right? Like the, I mean, the whole list from the neurotic to the paranoid and the, the distinctions among them, I get those distinctions, but there's always a sense of um, perversion is a problem. Yeah. And, and it is one of the things that I like in Deleuze is it's like, Perversion, Perversion in itself, is the it's the case, you know, right. and I mean, he's, he says that in the chapters that we read for today, where it's, it's immediately and directly perverse. It's not, it's not that some of them are, it's not like uh, particular instantiations end up perversions. Like, no, no, perversion is truly the case of, of sexuality. Yeah. And so that's, that's more interesting to me, still not enough to make me want to get into it. Um, well, if you take so. uh, if you take Lacan as like perhaps one of the best thinkers in that vein, yeah. I, I take his con- the content of the arguments out. I think stylistically, there's something a little off uh, with his writing. I mean, it's very domineering. You could relate it to Hegel if you want, but this is but- yeah. Butler's problem with Lacan seems to stem primarily with a stylistic thing. It's like the way that he articulates these distinctions is itself authoritarian. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the content of the Oedipal framework. It's like the way he's writing is there's something wrong there. And it's a little bit, if you, if you find a passage on that, because that's, that's the style question, right? Yeah. If you find a passage where Butler has said like the, the problem with Lacan is the disposition that one finds in the very writing, not the categories themselves. I would love, I would love to check that out. Well, I might be um, kind of uh, appropriating Butler a little bit there. It might be tough to find that. that well, but if it's, yeah, I mean, I, I might, I might be able to, it's, it's kind of, I've been writing through cause Zizek saves Lacan, you know, yeah, from right. Butler's critique. And I think right. they're both just wrong. It's like, I don't, I don't think saving Lacan really gives you anything. And I also don't think, like Butler does try to do those kind of logical, formal critiques at times. And I think as like the problem with trying to do that with Hegel too, is like, it's really difficult to like say, Oh, he's wrong here. It's, yeah. it, it really is, I think a, a stylistic thing or a tonal uh, problem. Tonal, Cause yeah, Lacan yeah. is so smart clearly, but it's like, he's, oh, yeah. it's like he's toying. He wants to be smarter than you. He's toying yeah. with the reader. It's smartest guy in the room well, syndrome. Well, right, right. But it's, it, it feels, <laughs> it, it feels, um, I don't even know what the word is exactly. It just, it, it feels domineering, manipulative, uh, manipulative, and it feels like he's having fun fucking with you. Like, yeah. you know, and Hey, I mean, there's room for those kind of people in the oh, world. Course, it, course, it's just, uh, I don't know if we should be hailing Lacan as Zizek kind of tries to do, you know, it's as like the thinker, you know, it's like Lacan Hegel for Zizek. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I never really understood the, the need to save these people. I understand the desire and the want to read them differently and to sure, maybe yeah. offer a different version, a contingency, you know, version of Hegel or Lacan. But, but Zizek's compulsion to be like, no, 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 they're actually like good or, or ethical or the best. It's like, I don't know. I, I think Butler's hesitance is spot on at times. Maybe yeah. the reading isn't perfect, but. And that, and that might be a Zizek thing as well, because I, I agree with you. That's a, that's a tonal or dispositional thing with Zizek. Because he's never just going to say, look, I understand why that reading is out there. There are other readings that are available. He's not going to do that kind of pluralism. No. He's going to be like, those readings are wrong. Right. This is the right one. And you're like, right. dude. And, and I, again, dispositionally, that just always has rubbed me the wrong way. It's one of the things, because Derrida will be like playful and ludic at the reader's expense and that sort of stuff. But it never feels like, uh, it, at least to me, or it doesn't right. often feel, maybe it does at times, but it, it doesn't feel like Derrida thinks he's figured it out. Right. You know, um, it's, it's always like, well, we're trying, we're trying something. And yes, uh-huh. I'm a bit of a maestro in my efforts to try it. Cause stylistically, I mean, to me, the, pl- the sort of ludic quality of some of the early Derrida and right. Lacan sound, they sound very, very similar, but I, I agree with you. There's a, there's a, a different tone to it. And that's where anything that you come across, even if it doesn't say exactly that, but if you come across moments of, you know, whether Zizek saying it or Bob saying, it, I don't really care. Just things that I can point to is like, Hey, this question of disposition or uh, uh, orientation within the writing itself is, is objectionable or is laudable or is anything right. is, is relevant, is relevant. 
So, right. you know, cause I kind of, cause kind of one of the underlying claims that I want to make is this is in fact, what's been driving the field of philosophy is this is resonance and dissonance of dispositions and styles, yeah. not development of thinking or, right. you know, anything like that. It's just, it's dance moves. Off the top of my head, I think it's in their, um, their joint book together where they really engage yeah. each other on that level. It's a hegemony, contingency, and universality. Yeah. It's like, right. it's Butler, Zizek, and LaClau. And, and I just kind of ignore yeah. LaClau, but uh, I like the <laughs> Butler and Zizek stuff. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I cool. mean, there is, I think, a cruelty to Lacan's writing and by extension often in Zizek's writing, which again, sometimes I don't mind. I mean, it's like Zizek can be mean to uh, often to his uh, interlocutors. And I, and I think it is reductive a lot of the times that I'm like, I guess that's just who he is. I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. A lot of it's smart. And then he'll be like, fuck you. And then smart stuff. And then a fuck you. It's like, well, you know, and it can be funny. I mean, yeah. those things can be funny as well. It depends. I mean, it just depends. And it depends, of course, on my disposition when I'm reading the things right. and my relationship, you know, uh, so those, the kind of, you know, I've got a whole chunk on voluptuous vitriol. Right. Um, right. <laughs> like, and this is the critiques, it's critiques of Derrida. I, I don't know if you read that or not, but it's critiques of Derrida and they're like, oh, yeah, they're, yeah. Ex they're extraordinary. I mean, they are not, it's not as simple yeah. as Derrida doesn't know anything. It's like they go incredibly out of their way in, in, in right. very rich, aesthetically, uh, provocative yeah. sentences mm -hmm. to say Derrida's an idiot, doesn't know what he's talking about, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, there's something in that act that I find really kind of fascinating, you know? Oh yeah. And probably the voluptuousness. Yeah. Of probably symptomatic of something as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. They yeah. love and to so, hate Derrida. I mean, they just yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And I get it. And I don't have a problem with that. And I certainly, I mean, Derrida doesn't need me or anyone to defend, you know, so, no. but yeah, if anything that you come across that sounds like that kind of shit, send it my way, man. Cause I, right. I, I, I'm always looking for, because insofar as I want my claim to be not, I've discovered something. Cause I don't think I've discovered something. It's just, I'm pointing to something that has been a driving force that people don't ever talk about as a driving force, right. which is, you know, because I, I do increasingly think that it is, it's like horror movies or it's like music. It's like, hey, I think that, uh, you know, Jeff Tweedy is an incredibly talented musician. I just don't really like listening to Wilco, <laughs> right? And and yeah. I don't understand. And quite honestly, I actually think that, that philosophy is the same thing. Yeah. Right? It's it's not, it's not because it's conceptual and, and involves thinking, we 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 try to treat it as if it's a different kind of thing. And it's just like, eh, you know, it's got a good beat, but I can't dance to it. Right. And that's really, I mean, that's the underlying motif of the style thing is that's what drives, like some things are going to hook you and some things aren't. It's true. I like, I like Avril Lavigne. Right. Which is why this is, it's why I'm, I'm hesitant around like the tendency to save a figure who's been damaged by the, a tradition. Like, like, I, again, I like Zizek's reading of Hegel, a lot of it, and I've used some of that to, to mobilize my argument. But the, the entire project is this kind of, uh, savior of, of like, so Hegel's been thrown to the side, um, or critiqued and dismantled and we've wanted to get past him. I'm going to save the figure of Hegel and turn him into not just the best theoretical, uh, philosopher, but also an ethical figure. And I'm like, this is, it's where it goes a little bit, uh, too far yeah. for me. And he does the same thing with Lacan. It's one of the things that I had the most trouble with, with Derrida on Nietzsche, because Derrida, uh, is very explicit in places where he's like, I'm not going to save him from, uh, the Nazi appropriation. Right. And it took me a really long time. I now find that to be a really interesting decision on Derrida's part. But for the longest time, I'm like, come on, man. Like, why not? Like, he clearly wasn't a Nazi. What, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, but, but it is to your point of there's a dispositional difference between, you know, like, hey, there are other Nietzsche's. And, and that's what Derrida says. I mean, yeah. Derrida's line is there, there is not, I mean, of all thinkers, this is the one who gives himself multiple names and get, you know, so, uh, there, there are many Nietzsche's and I'm not going to say that this one trumps that one or this one's better than that one. This is just another one. And, and 
that that sense of a kind of pluralism appeals to me more than it used to. Mm-hmm. It, I, I used to want him to smack down the the Nazi uh, appropriations, but he would he didn't do it. Right. So. Right. Yeah. I don't see the need to turn someone into the answer, you know, for everything. I, I like this version, but he's not yeah. the answer, you know. Because we know there's only one answer and it's fucking AI and I don't want to hear any arguments. I don't want to hear any arguments from anyone ever because only he's Alan the Iverson. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to think about humor and, and its relationship to irony and sure. satire? Yeah. I thought you, I mean, you know, Deleuze often runs this sort of irony versus humor thing. This is one of the first times I've seen him run the satire mm. uh, one as the kind of regression that, I mean, he doesn't use this language, but it seems totally caught up in the the sort of schizophrenic movement of of depth and pure paralyzing mixture. Right. Um, right. But the humor one was interesting. Like I could see how the, the like good comedy doesn't have to be funny. Yeah. Just given the sort of the, the descriptors here, you know, like I, I know I'm starting with, you know, the, the third in the series, but I'll just read this quick part on, on two forty eight in the, in the last series. It's like, yeah, the, so right at the end, it's like the la- literally the last paragraph of the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The university of sense grasps language in this complete system as the total expressor of a unique expressed, the event. The values of humor are distinguished from those of irony. Humor is the art of surfaces and of the complex relation between the two surfaces, beginning with one excessive evocation. well, evocation. Humor constructs all univocity, beginning with the properly sexual evocation, which ends all equivocity. Humor releases a desexualized univocity, a speculative univocity of being uh, and language, the entirety, the entire secondary organization in one word. And then he just goes on to talking about like, hey, here's my here's my real sum up. I want someone who's you know, one third stoic, one third Zen and one third Lewis Carroll. Right. But that, that, you know, the, there's a way in which humor and sense are incredibly tightly woven together as nothing more than the communication between surfaces or between series. Right. That, you know, sense as, um, the particular, weight and force and direction, you know, the singularity of, of, um, of, you know, intersecting series, right? That, the, the, the sort of movement, displacement, rearticulation, representation that happens at that moment, that, that is humor. That's not the, an elevation. That's not a regression. That is a sort of transversal Mm-hmm. movement that that forces you know a mutual transformation oh shit this you know these two things intersect and now this is not that and that is not this right. and then sometimes it's really fucking funny right right yeah i mean it's like it's another term for that ontological ethical principle that runs throughout the entire book i mean you call it sense becoming humor in this case as a foil for the um like romantic irony i think it it works very neatly here, you know, cause the, the romantic sense of irony would be the, the kind of traditional, um, sense or from the position of a comedian where they're in control of the entire apparatus, the joke, even if it's, uh, mm-hmm. um, self deferential or whatever, um, or what's the word? Not deferential, but where you're making fun of yourself. What is, what is that word? Um, anyway, the, where, <laughs> where, yeah. So you're, even if you're making fun of yourself, someone like Dave Chappelle is always in control of the structure. Self-deprecating. Deprecating. Jesus. Deprecating, yeah. Self-deprecating. Um, uh, that kind of humor, it's always based on the unified subject. You know, if we want to use the kind of theoretical mm-hmm. terminology, whereas Deleuze's humor is like you were saying, transversal and kind of, it deconstructs the subject in a way where it doesn't get the comeback together at the end, which is sort of what happens yeah. in that traditional um, romantic irony. So I always, I, I always think of it in terms of 
distance was another way of saying what you're saying, uh, Nate. Um, that irony to me presupposes a distance that you're mm-hmm. commenting on something, even if that something is yourself. Right. Right. Like I, I am taking a position and reflecting on the fact that I am being a smart ass or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, or I'm that, that you're always exterior to the to the object right. that you're talking about. And I take that humor and the commitment to surfaces to be I mean, that's the sense in which humor again, I mean, I think you, you said it, Nathaniel, it may or may not be funny, but that's secondary. You know, that yeah. that what what makes it humorous is the sort of um the the flatness of the the terrain yep. from series series to series um not its comedic quality right um, right but the the stuff towards the end i think is is quite is good mm-hmm. but it's very hard to to get a sense of yeah at least for, for me the the question of distance is what Distance from the object about which you're talking is what allows for irony to function and that humor undoes, undoes that sense that right. there's something sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, sincere is the wrong word though, because that gives it a whole interiority of authenticity, right? Like, um, so it's not, sincerity is not right. To me, it's also I, like a, like a relinquishing of control of, of some sort of subjective yeah. control yeah. over yeah. the, the situation, right? I mean, the schizo invites that as well in some sense, right? I mean, like yeah. there's no. It falls into the depths. Right. There, that, and that's the key yeah. is like the satire, which, you know, I mean, like if, if the, if the ironist is always in control and always distances themselves mm-hmm. from the object of the the irony even when it is themselves yeah there's always that 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 level of control and yeah. you know it's infinitely like the like the ironist can infinitely elevate themselves right because they can then make an object of irony their own ironizing of themselves right mm-hmm. adding right. like that's add, right like the meta move right yeah exactly it's the perpetual meta move right and there's the community the show the show community is yes. to me that's what it is and, and i totally enjoy that show i love but it is show, yeah. but it is 100 percent just abed's character is the meta i mean his character yeah. is the meta move character in the show you know which gets meta moved yeah. quite frequently oh yeah all the time right? It, it it seems like humor and Deleuze in general is invested truly, honestly invested in a vulnerability that's like yeah. constitutive. Yeah. Well, I, I, but now I'm just thinking of satires and like sat, I mean like think about Colbert, Stephen Colbert, and, and and John Stewart are satires, not ironists. Although they do definitely make ironic moves mm-hmm. here yeah. and there. But there's a reason why, like for, especially for Colbert. Um, you know the the more sort of like embodied physical humor matters more as you know yeah. you, you're when when like the ironist is always commenting on and it feels like the satirist is always inhabiting yeah the satirist but the the problem with satire is it's always at least to me it's always a form of irony like you're inhabiting it in order to comment on it you know um, so that even as you're assuming the role like Colbert is an example of this. Right now, that commentary can be ambiguous because people can mm-hmm. hear it in any number of ways. But, but you were performing the persona of the conservative Fox yeah. News host precisely to comment on it, to yeah. say right. how absurd, ridiculous, crazy, nuts is this? Right. You know? Yeah, it's still so like can, I mean, yeah. can irony mobilize satire? I mean, that would be kind of a, a question there. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, can irony mobilize satire as a tool for commenting, right? Does there need to be, oh, like, yeah. can there be an intermediate step there? Probably. I mean, I, I just feel like for Deleuze, they both rely on some sort of dialectical operation where there's the there's the true position, like for satire, right? I mean, it's, it's an easy... Uh, opposition where you're inhabiting the bad position to make fun of it, but there's your true, um, ideology, which is like behind that and that you would actually occupy in your personal life or whatever, you know, right. and, and that's, that- that's where Cole, that's why Colbert, cause you know, the Colbert report was one show. He's now. Right. A different. Person. He's the, he's the liberal guy now. I mean, through and right. through. Right. He's the opposite right. of what he was on the show, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 
And I guess for Deleuze, the, the issue is that it's not invested enough in that kind of constitutive complexity or, or like dissociation that might happen when you truly confront events. I used to joke about life being like a sitcom, but the like is the word that's sort of gone away. And I've started thinking like, no, it, it just straight up is a sitcom. Like <laughs> with, with all of the like um, violence and brutality that sitcoms can't, can have often don't, but um, that it's not secondarily a sitcom. It, it actually just is one right. and with no viewers. And, and, it, and I think that slight shift from like to, to getting rid of, you know, from the, what simile to the metaphor mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever, um, is it's a different perceptual experientially. It, it feels very different. Not that that means anything, but it's, it does seem like it, it, we talked about this a, a few weeks back, I think of me coming, me increasingly realizing how influential television and movies and media are to how people walk around in the world and yeah. interact with other people. And that's what I mean. So it's not just like, well, that's the artificial and here's the real and it's been mediated through the artificial. It's like, no, no, no. This stuff is directly you know, it's there's where the logic of mediation, I think, is is too dis too distancing. It's right. too iron. It's too ironic. So you, know? you would have what you would have to do to that. I mean, the the, the the labor that I would do to that that claim yeah. would be to take the supposedly transcendent features of the sitcom, which would include things like plot resolution, yeah. right, and then flatten those out as as antigens on a flatter plane which mm -hmm. means that they aren't going to govern anything but they will provoke like yeah. those those features right uh, uh like you know those those supposedly governing features will not govern but that doesn't mean they're not operative they will still operate in relationship to a whole set of other tropes and uh that's in um, that's interesting i mean do you have more like that's tell me more uh, about that like what it what it would mean for plot um to not to not govern um i mean so what happens like take you know the life sitcom scenario that is deploying a certain you know array of of topoi and tropes yeah. and just one of them so happens to be resolution right 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 so we're now, now instead of thinking about resolution as a determinant point within a plot where all of the you know all of the tropes and topoi are going to now merge together in some harmonious know, way, unification yeah. har harmonious unification the force of a sense of of um resolution is is going to operate within a set of 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 uh, other tropes and topoi that some of also which operate within what's something that we would call like a sitcom yeah like a, like a sitcom environment other ones that that don't yeah i'm curious have either of you guys watched this new um it's kevin can go fuck himself uh no the, the girl from schitt's creek is the lead and she plays the pretty sitcom wife married to the schlubby guy, but the whole thing, but apparently she's like a serial killer or something. Like it's not funny. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really, or, or rather, I think it's kind of like, did you guys ever see natural born killers? Mm -hmm. There's a chunk in natural born killers where they shift into sitcom mode and it's an ultra violent mm. scene of brutality, but it's all shot with a laugh track and like a sitcom. <laughs> it's incredibly disjunctive. Oliver Stone, it's incredibly disjunctive and jarring. And that was 25 years ago. Um, and I, I take it, I haven't watched it yet, but I take it that this is something like that. It's, it's clearly a commentary on the sitcom phenomena of, Kevin James, right? Like, I mean, specifically right. it's naming him for God's sake, but I mean, that sort of King of Queens, that sort of, you know, the, the beautiful, reasonable, decent, hardworking, who's there to basically train a man child, yeah. you know, uh, um, that it's taking that, but it's actually gets fun. I mean, I'm just sort of curious if that might be doing something. It's clearly interested in the structure of sitcoms. It's about sitcoms. Right. right. Well, like, let's go back to community for a second, because I, I definitely see the irony 
that is operative there yeah, and the yeah. meta move on the meta move. But those meta moves get out of control and not just, I think, because they go so far up to just such rarefied air that it can't breathe anymore. But they, like... There's a lot of sort of like nomadic movement, I think, on that. Do you think, I, I wonder about that. I mean, I wonder about that because I actually, I went, I did a whole community thing during pandemic. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I rewatched it and I, I think it's a really smart and really interesting. I really enjoy the show, but I always, I mean, especially towards the end, I really got the feeling that they were pulling back on the Abed because of the transcendence function and they were mm-hmm. substituting it with the main guy. I can't remember his name, yeah. Joe, whatever is the actor. Um, and he, and he was the pragmatist who didn't have any time for the meta move. And I, it seemed to me like they were, and it, I mean, I, 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 I see the idea of the, the meta move becomes not this way, but you know, this it becomes, Trans- a, uh, it becomes transversal. And, and I mean, like you have to get move. into it a certain amount when, yeah. Because the move, it looks like they're they're just purely going up. But right. when they start reaching back to previous episodes, and especially when they reach back to previous episodes that don't exist, like in some of their like I think about the bottle episode that they do when they when when there's the lost pen, and they're reflecting mm-hmm. on all of the times that they've sort of like gone through this exact same pattern, uh-huh. yeah. and you know Jeff is going to heal us. And they like flip back to a bunch of episodes that don't exist, and oh, they, they just they do the little cuts, right? Little yeah, little cuts of things yeah. that you know, like and, and a lot like they're setting the reader up to do this sort of sitcommy thing where you're gonna like go back and reflect on yeah. you know previous episodes because they do they do they, that a lot. I mean, they do they do they do like, do that, yeah. but they splice it together with all these other ones, mm-hmm. yeah. and sort of like you know the position of the of the viewer as the sort of like you know like think about the situation irony of the or was it the dramatic irony or situational whichever one like the viewer is aware of the disjunction but the characters are and they turn that on on the viewer or like think about the claymation episode when you know the meta move is for abed to imagine his reality as a christmas special but then the more transversal move is for um John Oliver. John Oliver is sort of smearing that pure meta move across two different plots mm. at once, right? Where like that meta move is happening on the same plane as the as the regular. I see what move, you're right? saying. Because yeah. what it's not is it's not like a special episode where it begins from beginning to end in um, inclamation uh, world. They have a friend who's ha- who's going through a trauma. And they like role play this whole claymation right. thing, so it's That's happening right. at two levels and then getting smeared across like other plot lines at the same time. Mm. Hmm. I don't know because that that reads to me like the intrusion of the real into the hallucination. There's definitely that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see, but I, I see. I mean, look, but the hallucination I, intrudes into the real as well, and not just for Ovid. I think it would be really cool if we did this with like episodes of shows. Like we actually, you know, we've read a lot of theory stuff. Now let's watch some, like watch the claymation show, watch the Bo Burnham thing. I, I like, I like what you said, the way you articulated it earlier, I think was really good where, um, I, I think of it as my yoga experience. Cause about 10 years ago, I tried doing yoga. And I remember when I went in the first time and it, the, the person who's leading it says like, okay, everybody center yourself. And I thought in my head, I went, Oh, fuck this. Yeah. Dumbass version of centering yourself. And all right, now I got to put up with this and whatever, whatever. And then the next, then several times later, she says, center yourself. And I was like, okay, she doesn't really mean center yourself. She actually means decenter yourself. That's actually what she's after. She just is using this dumbass humanist terminology. And then the third time, by the very end of the summer, I'd been going to this, you know, weekly or whatever. And the third time she says, center yourself. And I just did. Right. It's like that, that sort of Hegelian progression from critic, you know, sort of criticism to substitution to, 
I don't even bother with criticism or substitution. The way you're talking about representation, so yeah. you don't even need to go through the critique moves anymore. When you hear representation, it just means something yeah. different than it meant. And how and could it not? How could how could, how could it, it how ever have not meant that? Yeah. Like right, and that's the point, at least in my experience, where you get into trouble because now you start yeah. actually believing that everybody thinks representation is not. Uh, the sort of duplicative right. uh, relationship. And so you say a oh, representation because in your own head, it has yeah. a different resonance and everyone else is like, what? That's the bad guy. That's <laughs> yeah. been, yeah, that's been my, cause I've always thought of it like, especially through Derrida and his like imploded version of, of representation. Cause it's really just repetition. I mean, like difference in, re- I yeah. mean, representation, D- repetition, right. That's right? It's really just repetition. And when you think of that, level of complexity, I always loaded the term representation with that. And so you just use it as if it means that, or you do a little bit of explanation, but like, yeah, again, like most people are thinking either like the platonic version of like the copy and the, the model right. and the copy uh, or the something. Co- that's where next week is really important. But yeah. also, by the way, I just want to point out when you say it's really just repetition, think of the word repetition in the way most people hear it. It ain't the way you meant it. Like no, yeah. nothing's the yeah. way yeah. anything right. means. Like, differential repetition differential and repetition of the same are exactly, very different. Exactly, are very, that, that very different. So, I mean, that's a, even in your example, it's like, okay, we can all say repetition yeah. and know that we don't mean repetition. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, this is interesting to go Stuff. back to irony and, and humor and the sort of the, the, the control of the subject versus the sort of like uncontrolled or the more much more like sort of like imminently directed movements of, of humor that are that don't have that that, that teleological track. Yeah. And you know, I went back and I read the, the first couple of, of series and, you know, the very first one is about the. Uh, Plato invites us to distinguish between two dimensions, that of limited and measured things, so let's call that nouns, and um, or fixed quantities, permanent or temporary, which always presuppose pauses and rests. Uh, like John, you call this uh, uh, picture thinking or camera, mm-hmm. like camera, like where like there you have frames and they're all individuated snapshots right. of things, but you can't think the movement between, between them, right? You have right. to like go wholly from one to wholly to something else, and there's or you're thinking about becoming in which case there are no pauses there are no rest there is no stable substance there is only ever like a a sort of internalized disequilibrium that is always you know mutating that is is always mutating and you know the, the the ironic move is always is is the move between those picture frames right where it's like one one snapshot to another snapshot and there's the kind of control there whereas like the the mad becoming is always just the sort of like the, the, a differential repetition or a differential movement between you know intersecting forces that you're that, that, that there is mm-hmm. yeah there's no there's no such thing as snapshotting that there is mm-hmm. as he says it eludes the present there is no mm-hmm. which like again like humor is not always funny you can't control where it's going to go you can't you can you can introduce resolution or the the coming back full circle or something like that into those mad becomings but it's not going to take on a teleological governing operation yeah and and not just and not just on the perlocutionary level right like not just in terms of the effect that it has on an audience that they either laugh or laugh it's not just that it's actually in the making of the thing Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I mean, it, it just points to also like the the move away from the kind of vulgar psychoanalytic version of representation. Like, not only for Deleuze is there a presence, or it's not that there's a presence that has been lost that we are aiming right. to represent. Represent it's that there never was any presence to be represented yeah. in the first place. Right. So it truly is yeah. just differential relations across this flat ontological plane right. that you can't right. capture. There's no capturing those, those no question that terminology capturing. doesn't yeah. even make, doesn't sense make sense in the system. Yeah. Right. That's where, that's where, I mean, it feeds into that. that's where the correctness failure thing. It's yeah. like, it just doesn't, it doesn't have any purchase in the system. It's like that doesn't, you know, right. or rather it's a, a secondary derivative way of freeze framing it to make it look like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I, that is the thing that has always appealed to me about Deleuze is it seems I mean, it's an ontological diagram that's so much more, um, I don't know, diffuse or uh, um, 
possible. Both precise and liberating, or precise and yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it, it presents you with this sort of uh, limitless possibilities that always have to be enacted. Um, but if nothing else, you kind of recognize, or it allows me to recognize the really kind of deep normative ways in which all of my thinking is structured, right? Yeah. And and all of my actions, and even the times when I think I'm being most free and most liberated, it's like, no, 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 that's right. a, a very sort of constrained notion of freedom that thinks about yourself as a self and et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I find incredibly compelling about Deleuze is that I feel like it's going to infinitely push on levers, that right. there's never yeah. going to be a point at which it's like, okay, I got this. It just can't be. Right. Right. Well, it, it, this makes the the dualism that he installs between the physical and the metaphysical all the more interesting because you know it it he does have a particular invested interest here in in language and and sure. basically what like language logic the metaphysical realm the conceptual realm are are all more or less the same thing for him. And they all interact with this other sort of like physical realm, but yeah. these the, the, the relationship between the two isn't one of that vulgar representation of one That's of right. commenta- commenting and, and, and mimicking. And that, you know, this metaphysical series of operations invades and alters the physical and vice versa as, as well, is that they're constantly, you know, intermingled with each other. Yeah. But, you know, like it's, it's hard... It's it's hard to 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 maintain the distinction between the physical and the metaphysical when you make that move when it's when they're not of different kinds. That's right. right. When, it, when it's surely connective, convergent, and divergent series. That's it. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Um, yeah. I mean, it is where I I I do find thinkers like uh, Butler, Hegel, even Foucault sometimes not necessary, but uh, like sort of productive to think alongside Deleuze because Deleuze is more emphatically a thinker of potential and, um, yeah. you know, of, of dynamics. Whereas they, that triad, which is kind of difficult to, co- yeah. to group them are much more thinkers of constraints and, yes. you know, performative, like, uh, dicta almost, you know? So it's like, right. I just find it, um, useful to think them alongside each other because I don't think one, I don't think either one is better than the other. I just think I, I tend to lean maybe obviously mm-hmm. more into the, the lane of like, what is constraining my, uh, my thinking or my being? What's forcing me to, to act or, or, or think in these certain ways? Whereas Deleuze and I think you guys with Deleuze are more invested in like, how do we, do different things, you know, as opposed to like sort of remaining at that normative uh, level of, of behavior. Well, I, I think it's the states of affairs slash actual versus right. virtual potential. Right. You know, as, as, as a mode of emphasis, it certainly isn't either or, mm-hmm. right. For, for any of those folks, certainly yeah. not for Butler. Right? No. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're right. I think that there's, there's a way in which for Deleuze, States of affairs are just kind of, I don't know, uninteresting epiphenomena. Yeah. Not, I mean, that's, that's a little bit extreme because states of affairs really matter, but they matter insofar as something is happening that makes them. Right. Not, not them themselves. Um, Inessential. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, I mean, and again, now I'm importing the sort of transcendence model here, which I don't want to do, but. Right. I, well, I he has the language of, yeah, I mean, here, this, this is a good line for that. This is right after he's talking about sort of, he's basically talking about a physics of, of sense and like, or, or of thinking of, of the movement from the nonsensical point to, the um the, the the mad becoming of the the line the the, the uh, line moving in two directions at once to the sort of the production of the surface the plane so you know yeah. be uh, the, uh, the, it is this whole system point line surface that represents 
the organization of sense and nonsense. Sense occurs to states of affairs and insists in propositions, varying its pure univocal infinitive according to the series and states of affairs which it sublimates and from which it results and the series of propositions from uh, which it symbolizes and makes possible. Um, the, the way that like it in some ways, it's like states of affairs would be all too uninteresting, all too dumb of an animal to, to you know, parody that Nietzsche phrase yeah. uh, without, with, with, without... Um, the sense that insists. Yeah, a sense that insists. That, that sort of puts them in... It, it would be all too schizophrenic. Uh, let's put it this way. States of affairs would be all too schizophrenic. It would be all sort of like a downward regressive movement of, of bodies mixing and settling and uh, uh, without a kind of uh, conceptual lightness to bring it all up to the surface and allow for states of affairs to communicate with each other in, in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be able to communicate. Mm -hmm. or without Which we, we would call perversions. Right. Yeah. 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 I like that. Yeah. Let, let me also say, since we're wrapping up now, how much I've missed you guys and how much I've missed this. Like, seriously, yeah. in the last three weeks, I've been jonesing. And so this is, I mean, this is great. Yeah. It's been a yeah. while. It's been a minute <laughs> since we had a podcast. Good.